Hello, I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Insider, PW's podcast, taking you inside some of the biggest stories and books in the world of publishing. So it's almost fall, which as we know in the book publishing world, that means many of the year's biggest books. And uh, this year we got books from uh, Haruki Murakami, Barbara Kingsolver, J.K. Rowling, Michelle Obama, Sally Field, among many, many others. In today's episode, you'll hear from one of those debut authors, DeRay McKesson, whose book On the Other Side of Freedom was one of our most anticipated books of the fall and is out now. But first get a little bit of background to talk more about fall books the fall season we're joined by our very own executive editor johnny segura hello johnny hi mark thanks for having me it is a pleasure you have your finger on the pulse of everything that is coming out this season it's fall so we now we have fall upon us the biggest books of fall right here. Yes. Yes. So it's good. Uh, if you're in New York, it's good time to be inside and read a book because it's no fun to be outside. The book everybody's talking about for the past week and a half just hit streets this week. Bob Woodward's Fear. Small book, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of inconsequential in the history of things. I would say, you know, <laughs> not a big deal. Yeah. That one, I guess they sold 750,000 copies the first week. Oh. Uh, in all nice. formats. Nice. Big. But, you know, there are other books in the world, believe it or not. One I'm reading right now is a novel called Melmoth, or Melmoth, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, by Sarah Perry. She did The Essex Serpent. Uh, this book comes out in October. And it's this really, really super well done, creepy, kind of contemporary gothic horror novel mm. that sort of tumbles through, you know, the centuries and follows this sort of ghostly mythic figure that is not somebody you'd want to have show up on your doorstep. Right. Super fun. Super fun. Super creepy. Uh, highly recommend it. Comes out in October. One you had mentioned earlier that I think, you know, again, is going to be a huge one. Comes out in November is Michelle Obama's memoir. Yeah. It's called Becoming. We don't know much about it. It's embargoed. Right. Which uh, means we won't get it till the day before publication or maybe a week if we're lucky. If we're lucky. If yeah. we're lucky. Yeah. We will sign NDAs. <clears throat> But we're still managed to get it out on the day of publication. We're going to do our best. Okay, good. We're going to do yeah, our best. That's what we try. Absolutely. Good. Looking forward to that. Good. Another embargo title that I think is probably pretty high on your list of books to read this fall, Mark. Mm. Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibble White, the Roger Daltrey memoir. Yes. Uh, great title. Yes. Also embargoed. Yes. <laughs> great cover on it. I've seen the cover. <laughs> We've seen the it cover. It looks like the kind of book that you'd want to read that Roger Daltrey wrote. Exactly. And the thing about it is it doesn't seem like it's too long. Oh, we like that. We like short books. Right. Exactly. Books. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So, yeah, that, that, should, be, that should be pretty good. Um, that is pubbing uh, second week of October or so, maybe the third week of October. Um, at, at some week in October. It's going to be a Tuesday. It's, it's going to be a Tuesday in it's October. It's going to be a that Tuesday. Come out. We'll call it right there. Yes, exactly. Another one that I have on my list is Jane Levy's uh, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. Levy, just uh, all of her sports books, uh, Sandy Koufax, Mickey Mantle, just are all usually pretty big on the bestseller list. Another was Andrew Roberts, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. That's going to be a big book, both in importance and in size. Thousand pages plus? I, I'm thinking it's got to be. I know it is. You, oh, know, you know how I know? You know wait, how, how do you know? Because <laughs> no. right before I came in here, I saw the review of that book that we're going to publish soon. Is it really over a thousand? I think it's a thousand eighty-eight. Maybe I'm making that up. It's over a thousand. I'm going with that. It's wow. Big. All big. right. Good. Good. So that's going to be a good book for people to read this fall. Cozy up next people to a fireplace. People love Churchill bios. They, they love Churchill bios. They do, and they like reading my, my fireplaces. He'll he'll read really anything that's got Churchill in it. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, 
that's that's his Christmas gift. And then we've got Heartland, a daughter of the working class reconciles an American divide. Sarah Smarsh, we did a Q and A with her, got a star review. I think that's going to be something big coming up. This yeah, season. he has a lot of coverage of that one. Yeah. All right. I'd be remiss to not mention the Haruki Murakami novel that's coming out. Great. Another one that's not not as big as as the Churchill book. This is a mere seven hundred something pages of classic Murakami, you know, weirdness. Right. 250,000 copy print run on that one. That'll be big. If that's coming in October, uh, Murakami novel is always an event, and this one, you know, surely will be as well. Great. Excellent. That sounds good. And for our friends who like the thrillers, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would count myself among those friends. Yes. Uh, The new Robert Galbraith or J.K. Rowling. Uh, Great. And depending on, you know... <clears throat> who you're talking to when, but the cover is going to say Robert Galbraith. As we all know, that is J.K. Rowling of, of Harry Potter fame, but it's uh, there's the four, I think it's the fourth one in this, in this thriller series featuring P.I. Cormoran Strike and his assistant Robin Ellicott. Anyway, those are, those are always really fun books. Pretty well done. High hopes for this one too. Sounds great. Anything else you want to mention? Additionally, I would be remiss to not mention. Um, it's also a shameless plug for our friend and colleague, Craig Teicher. Oh, uh, it's his nice. book called we begin in gladness, which I'm holding up to Mark right now to show him because I have a copy. That's a nice copy, and he doesn't. How did you get the copy? I didn't get that. Well, Craig gave it to me. And he signed it. Craig, wait a minute. Anyway, Craig Craig wrote this great collection of essays. Great. The subtitle is "How Poets Progress." So it's an essay collection about poets and poetry. I'm feeling my life changing just by listening to yeah. the title yeah, right yeah. now. So. We begin in gladness. We'll be right back with our interview with Deray McKesson. This is Mark Rotella from PW Insider. Hi, I'm Calvin Reed, co-host of More to Come, PW's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. Every Friday, you'll get a chance to hear three generations of comics fans talk about the comics they love, from indie comics to superhero comics and manga. You'll also get to hear from two veteran comics reporters, myself and Heidi, along with our producer, Kate. And we'll be there to talk about the issues and business trends in today's graphic novel marketplace. Today's guest is DeRay McKesson, an educator, activist, host of the podcast Pod Save the People, and author of the forthcoming book On the Other Side of Freedom. Hello, DeRay, and thanks so much for talking with us. Hey, no, it's good to be here. So this is a collection of essays in which you reflect on what you've learned from protests, family upheaval, racial inequality, homophobia, community organizing, abuse, and love. Um, I'm quoting our review of your book right now. There's a lot of stuff in here. What made you decide to write this book? I went to a sermon uh, not too long ago, and the sermon was entitled, Don't Tell Your Story Too Soon. And I remember being like, what does that mean, right? That's that is an interesting idea. And what he says in the end is sometimes if you tell your story too soon, all you can see is the pain, not the purpose. And I think if I had written a book about what I've experienced and seen two years ago, it would have been all about the protest. It would have been a play-by-play about being in the street. And I'm at a point now where I can look back and, and sort of see the, the lessons that I've learned from the protests from before when I was a teacher and think about like how we can talk about those and reflect on them in a way that sets us up uh, for a better future. So that's why I wrote the book as a way to reflect and offer some thoughts about where we go. So before we get into the protest, because I do want to talk about that, this is a significant part of the book and of course your life experience, but how do you think your experience working in education has taught you about society and, and activism? Yeah, you know, I, I often say that I think the classroom is the last radical space in America that 
it's sort of the last place where people still fight about ideas and still sort of understand the importance of ideas and the, and the best ideas. So that, I think, gave me a sense of urgency around uh, being in the street in the first place. You know, I worked for a school system when Mike Brown got killed. And I remember being on my couch uh, on that Saturday morning and being like, I'm going to go down. And one of the reasons that I went down was because a kid got killed. It was a, a kid going to college and I spent my whole career in education. And it was like, if I sort of say that I'll stand with kids wherever, then the least I could do was go down to Ferguson. Like that was what I, that was what was going through my head that day. And then I got tear gas on the second night I was there and I was like, I'll do whatever I can to make sure this doesn't happen to any kid or anybody ever again. But it was my career in education that like made me go in the first place. So now we're on that a little bit about Mike Brown's killing in Ferguson in 2014. You know, you're watching the goings on and then became a participant. But what made you return and ultimately stay in Ferguson? We know what you know, you were just explaining what drew you there. What made you stay there? Yeah, so we were in the street for 400 days. So I went down the very first night and then took off work for like the next week, uh, unexpectedly stayed for a very long time and then would go back and forth from Minneapolis to St. Louis. So I was uh, I was there for for the vast majority of the protests, except for the first sort of seven days. Mike got killed on the ninth. I didn't get there until the 16th. So, so it was back and forth. You know, it was only a 50-minute flight. So I could literally leave work and still, in, in St. Louis, we didn't really hit the streets until the nighttime. Baltimore was the first city that people really protested during the day in a really heavy way. So I was there for the majority of uh, of what you understand to be like the first wave of the protests. And it was such an incredible sense of community. And I wanted to, you know, I've not written a uh, long form about any of this stuff really besides Twitter. Twitter has been like the longest form. And I wanted to, to finally sort of say how it happened, what happened, what we learned from those moments. I write this essay about God and what does it mean to do this work in the absence of God being a formal part of resistance right now. You know, God was such a big part of the civil rights movement and less so now. And like, what does that mean? And how do we process that? So all those things that I've been thinking about, but I had never written about, and the book was my, uh, was the place that I thought I could do that best. What was the process of writing like for you? Writing a book is hard. You probably know this better than I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I took a lot of time to just think about what are the stories that I wanted to write about. So there's so many things that have happened over the past four years, five years, uh, definitely in my test decade, I taught in the classroom a decade ago. So I started with thinking about like, what are the stories that I think actually matter the most, both to me and then both to like a larger message. And then I wanted to make sure that every essay wasn't just a retelling of, of something that happened, but also had a bigger message. So uh, there's an essay about my mother. The first time I've ever written about my mother, she left uh, when I was a little kid and came back recently. And like her leaving was a big, big part of my life. Um, and her coming back was too, in a way that made me think about the power of memory and what it means to the way we think about the world. So there are essays like that. There's an essay on the police. We've done a lot of research on policing in the past four years and have never really written about it any place. We put out sort of reports that people who study us deeply have engaged, but there's so much stuff that people should know, and there's a chapter on that. So there's a chapter on uh, the protests in, in Ferguson and, and so many things, Like, but it started with the stories were the things that led the book. 
You write about bullying of an uh, experience early on in your life after, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the house that you lived in burnt down. And then uh, I guess it was a, a fire to your babysitter was trying to put it out. It spread. And then you moved to another part of town with relatives. And it was there where during the 10, 15 minute walk to school and, or back that you, you experience anxiety and terror and bully. Tell us about that. And what that bullying means in society, in the bigger picture. Yeah, that essay actually was a speech that I, it started off as a talk that I gave somewhere. And the origins were, I was at dinner and somebody was like, DeRay, would you meet with Trump? And I was like, and I was trying to explain to him why not. And he was just like, but you've always told me that like, you should take the truth everywhere and da da da. And I said to him, like, it's not my job to tell the bully, to convince the bully to stop bullying me. Like, that's just not my job. Somebody should tell the bully to stop bullying people. But it's not the person being bullied. It's not your responsibility to convince the bully that you're like a whole person and a human and like should be bullied. And that's where that essay came from. And it made me think of, and it started as a talk, a speech that I gave, is that that walk home, it's like I knew what it was like to be around bullies and how bullies change not only sort of the way you think about your personal safety, but they also change like the landscape around you. And that became for me a metaphor for what's happening in this time. And like, what does it mean to resist? Whose responsibility is it to sort of push back and whose responsibility isn't? And then how bullies do way more than actually just impact like your momentary sense of safety, but actually change entire landscapes. And that's where that essay came from. And so I'm going to ask whose responsibility is it to push back? Ah, good, good. You know, read the essay. They, you've already read it. But so I think that uh, we have a response. People being bullied have a responsibility to resist, whether we call the resistance sort of self defense or something else. People who enable the bully, though, have a responsibility to stop the bully. So you think about all the people right now in this political moment who benefit from Trump's antics, who, who lean on him, who are employed by him, and they actually are a big part of the problem. I think about in the essay, it's like all the people that knew bullying was happening on our walk home uh, and just did nothing because they were like, oh, this doesn't really affect me. This doesn't matter until their car got broken into, until something impacted their kids. And like, you should actually care about these things, whether they impact you directly or not, because the thing about bullies is that they really only care about themselves and everything can become a target in the end. And you, you write about the quiet, uh, the habit of downplaying elements of one's identity in order to remain safe or, or how it can teach joy and freedom or leech joy and freedom out of life. Do you think there's a role for literature in bringing people out of the quiet? I mean, as one who's just written a book? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the powerful things, and this is certainly true of Twitter, I think it's true of books as well, is that so many of us didn't know that we weren't alone until we had seen other people processing the same things in the same way. So I remember being in the street and like we knew we were right. We knew that we were righteous and we knew that Mike Brown should be alive today. We didn't know that people from all over the region and all over the world would be watching us and would join in. But we, the way that we found out was through words. Like we found out on Twitter, we found out in essays, we found out when people eventually wrote books. And like, that was really powerful. In the book, I talk about this idea that, that language is always the first act, that language is the way that power is distributed and redistributed. Uh, and I think that literature has an incredibly important role in shaping the way that we think about the world around us and our own power. What books did you read while forming these essays here? Or what books have, have you read that, that have really moved you? 
so during this process, it was a lot of uh, Rustin. You know, Rustin's writings don't get as much sort of attention as they should, but he was such a clear writer. So it wasn't very flowery. It wasn't very poetic. That just wasn't his um, endeavor. But the ideas are so crisp. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with Rustin. Obviously, I revisited the work of Baldwin. You know, I feel like everybody's reading Baldwin. Um, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks. You know, I read some Eldridge Cleaver. I read a lot. I was trying to read a lot of uh, sort of activists who had written about their time in their time and not necessarily people who had reflected on it 20, 30 years later. It's just like a different type of book to read. Um, and even as a writer who's like very much still in, uh, you know, we're still in, in movement space, uh, is the tension between writing for, uh, writing for history and writing for the future. And I wanted to read people like Rustin who had engaged in that work and Ball and who had engaged in the tension between writing uh, for history and writing for the future. You're a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. And in your book, you explain the origins of the phrase and what it means to you. Can you talk about that? You know, it's, I think one of the hardest things to watch happen is that people remember the protests in Ferguson as like a long weekend. And the reality is that we were in the street for 400 days, that if not for those protests, there would be no movement that we now have, have called uh, Black Lives Matter, or uh, there wouldn't be young people all across the country in the streets in this way. Like it started as a result of uh, those incredible people uh, who went out on August 9th and all of us who stayed in the street thereafter. And uh, I wanted to talk about that in the book. So I talk about uh, all the people who have been or I talk about many of the people who have been sort of erased in the larger narrative around this work. And, you know, we remember in those early days, it was hashtag Ferguson was like the big hashtag. I remember when we started saying uh, Black Lives Matter as a, as a rallying cry and as a phrase. And I write about how that has taken sort of a different turn than what we originally had thought in those early days. Um, and I think about all of us as supporters is what you said. I think about, so many people led in that space. I think about what it means to be a leader in a movement um, and how what we saw in the street in St. Louis was so many people leading in really specific ways. It was the difference between organization and infrastructure. And what we learned then was never to confuse collective action with the work of organizations. And sometimes organizations actually provide space for collective action. But Ferguson was a case study and a model for for collective action to rise up and not need an organization to make it work. Well, when you ran for office uh, for mayor of Baltimore, you faced some backlash from members of the activist community who believe that you can't make meaningful change from within the system. How do you see those who believe in engaging outside the system versus those who engage from within, you know, reconciling for meaningful progress? One of the challenges that remains in the activist community is this the performative sense of purity. So when I ran, I think that that was at, a, at its height, um, this idea that the only way to be truthful and the only way to really care about uh, people is to be outside the system. I think that you see that completely different today. So uh, in the sector of Trump, it's like every if you don't run for office, you don't care, right? If you don't sort of vote, if you don't participate in politics, you don't care, which is markedly different than what it was in 2016 or like before the election in 2016. So I think that that, I think it's just different now. It's changed completely. I, some of the people that have criticized me are now the people running for city council and running for mayor, right? Like it's just like a different time. 
How do you see things going forward from here? One of the reasons I wrote the book is that I thought that we needed clear language about what has happened and where we go. And what I think happens from here is that there's been so much going on in the world that people need to still understand how to process so they can turn it into into action so that people aren't just informed but are transformed. And that's what I think comes next. I think it begins with a sense of education, and then we translate that into a set of skills. It's why the book isn't just sort of a memoir in its its sense of just telling stories that I've gone through, but it it is my uh, offering of these stories that help us lead to and think about bigger ideas in the world, that help us transform the way we think about the world, that will then shape the way that we act in the world. Well, Dre, thank you so much for talking with us. We wish you all the best with this book and a wide readership. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. Thanks for tuning in. And be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.